I'm Annalie Ashford. I'm Andrew Keenan Bulger. Hi, I'm Eden Espinosa. Hi, I'm Laura Osnes, and you're listening to Theater People. Hello, fellow theater people. Welcome to episode nine of the Theater People podcast. I'm Patrick Hines, your host. Michael Mayer has directed some of the most popular musicals of our time, Spring Awakening, American Idiot, and Thoroughly Modern Millie, just to name a few, along the way discovering many of this generation's most gifted Broadway performers. This season, he's back, this time at the helm of one of the most anticipated productions in years, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which stars one of the most popular actors working today, Neil Patrick Harris. Mayer has a long history with the show, going back to the 1990s, when he worked with John Cameron Mitchell and Stephen Trask, who were then developing the character at bars and off-off-Broadway theater spaces on Manhattan's Lower East Side. We're thrilled that Michael made time to talk to us to discuss Hedwig's long trapes to Broadway, as well as his many other career highlights. Really, truly thrilled and honored to have you here. Thank you for making time for us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. We're a little grassrootsy, so if you hear some like audition noise in the hallway, just try to ignore it, listeners. I always try to ignore audition noise <laughs> in the hallway. I'm very good at that at this point. <laughs> I would imagine. Um, okay, well, I guess we can just jump right in and maybe talk about Hedwig. Okay. I know you have a long history with Hedwig, and you're directing it for Broadway. It's opening in April. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about who Hedwig is and your uh, your experience relationship to the show. Well, um, Hedwig was a creation of John Cameron Mitchell, who was at the time an actor that I worked with um, on a Craig Lucas play at the Atlantic Theatre Company in 1995. And he started developing the story based on a woman that he knew in Kansas on the army base where he was raised by in his by his military family, right? So he had this idea that this woman that he knew who was um, an East German living in Kansas um, he he started just imagining what her life might be if she had sort of undergone a botched sex change operation in East Berlin in order to marry the American soldier that would then bring her to America. So that's that's how it all began. And shortly after we did our play together, he started reading me some of this monologue that he was writing. And I was completely freaked out by it. I thought it was amazing and weird, and I didn't know what the hell it was, but it was completely compelling. And he was putting, he was sort of creating this character in front of me, and she was really unlike anything I'd ever encountered before. Uh, once he and Stephen Trask turned it into what was going to become the musical Hedwig and the Angry Inch, I, I was part of their process to help put it together and try to find a theater that um, might put it on. But at that point, it was, you know, people weren't doing rock musicals. They weren't, people were afraid of something that had um, a transgender character at the center of the story. It didn't feel like a commercial or viable project to a lot of theaters. And I, I went through the same thing with Spring Awakening many, many years later. Right. Um, but they finally did get a producer, David Binder, to to do this uh, at the um, at the West Beth. Okay. At West Beth, and 
it happened that that coincided with when my own Broadway musical that I'd been developing called Triumph of Love finally got a theater itself. So I had to make like Sophie's choice between the two. And, you know, Triumph was something that I had nurtured from the beginning. And so it was really clear that that's where I had to go. And it broke my heart a little bit to say goodbye to Hedvig. But I remained a loyal fan and saw it in every one of its incarnations and loved it. Um, So I was really thrilled when it came back to me. Um, in this way. Yeah, and ultimately it, it found its off-Broadway home at the Jane Street Theater, right? Right. And I had read, did they create that theater? I mean... The, it was not a theater, it was just a hotel. And so they created a theater in, I think, what was the ballroom Yeah, and it hotel. is again now. The theater's no longer there. Right. Yeah. And then um, how, how did it come back to you, the show? A few years ago... David Binder, who's an old friend of mine, um, asked me if I might be interested in doing a revival of Hedwig on Broadway starring John Cameron Mitchell. Oh. And I would have loved to do that. And I said, oh, yeah, bring it. Let's, let's do this. But John's directing career in film and in television started really taking off. And he, he was very, very busy. And so that just it didn't happen then. That was, that was several years ago. And then about two years ago, it came back again, and the idea would be to that John wouldn't be in it, but that we would find someone who was a big enough star that could, you know, guarantee a certain kind of, you know, name presence to to make it worth doing on Broadway, and to you know really you know give it a, a shot at reaching a much wider audience now that we've advanced so much as a culture. Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking of that, okay, I, I've actually written some questions out verbatim because I wanted to make sure I okay. asked them right. Okay. Okay, so I'm just going to read this. <clears throat> so pardon me if it doesn't sound spontaneous. The social and political climate of 2014 is much more liberal than when Hedwig was originally produced in the late 90s and early 2000s. Marriage equality and gay rights issues are a major part of the national dialogue now. And also, you have one of the country's most beloved actors, Neil Patrick Harris, who is an out gay man married with kids performing the role. How does this affect how you approach the material now versus when Hedwig was originally produced? Well, since I didn't really, I I didn't direct it originally, you know, so I'm approaching it for the first time in a full production, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that that one of the one of the many many beautiful things about having Neil do this part is that it's he's part of the very zeitgeist that you are asking in your question so he is kind of um a manifestation in human form of all of the ways in which American culture, and actually, you know, throughout the world, really, and even though there are still places that, like, there's Uganda and Russia and stuff right, like that, of course. but but um, but certainly in America, we're in a much more open and understanding place than we've ever been. There's never been a better time to be a transgender person, right. to be a gay person, um, and so I feel like that, in and of itself says something to an audience because he's beloved and and correctly so he's an enormously talented guy with um a, on a very very popular television show and he's been part of our consciousness in pop culture ever since he was a kid so there's something unbelievably delicious about watching him 
do a role that, that he's never done before. He's never done anything like this. But he can bring with him all of us who have been with him all along and take us on this journey. And I think what it means is that Hedvig is, going, is not going to be a freak. You know, she's a very particular kind of person, and he's certainly not going to shy away from the, the sort of thornier parts of her or, or the rock sensibility at all. But he brings automatically a kind of, um, I think, a kind of basic under, human understanding with him. So I think that makes it uh, a really exciting opportunity for, for audiences who don't know this material and for big fans of Hedvig to come back and see it in this context. Yeah. You know, the other thing that that strikes me is that we live in a time now where we have a different like vocabulary than we did in, in the late 90s and the early 2000s. For example, the word transgender or intersex or genderqueer or whatever, these are words that people know and use, you know, now. Maybe not widely, but certainly. Yeah, I'm not sure what intersex is. I'm not quite sure either, but, <laughs> you know, I guess my question is, you know, do you approach Hedwig as a transgender person? Yeah. Well, that's that's what she is. I mean, you know, she it's it's very complicated and I don't know all the the most politically correct terms to describe this, but in my understanding of it is that before her operation, she was a, a gay boy named Hansel mm-hmm. and a, not against her will, she was a willing participant in turning herself into a woman so that she could leave East East Germany. She could leave leave that the communist world behind and and live as an American and live where all of that music that she loved so much growing up was and maybe she could be a part of that you know so by the time we meet her she's been living her life as a woman so in my mind that's transgender yeah yeah you know even yeah. if even if you know inside she's living she's a gay man mm-hmm. you know it's I mean that's the beauty of the show is that there's a kind of amazing ambiguity about that and her search for her other half becomes a search for self, right? So she was, you know, um, she was ripped in two, literally, and it also reflects the idea of that Plato, right? you know, the Plato Symposium about what, you know, the origin of love, which, you know, creatures were torn asunder and their journey in life was to find their missing half. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the casting of Neil Patrick Harris about how he became involved in the in the production? Well, as soon as it as soon as David called me, I said, "Well, we have to get Neil Patrick Harris." And um, so we went to him and it, it was a really difficult scheduling situation. And some other names came up, really good people, you know, wonderful actors who would be terrific in this, but I really felt like it was worth waiting for him to be available, and everyone agreed. So we all were very unified. Once once we understood that he was genuinely interested in doing it, he's someone also I've seen on stage ever since he did um, a James Lapine play, Pluck, Luck, and Virtue, at the Atlantic Theater Company. And I remember thinking, wow, this, you know, this is the Doogie Hauser kid. And he's, <laughs> right. he's growing up, and he's, he's a real actor. And he's got a real um, stage sensibility. Yeah. So I've loved watching him through the years. And, and I've known him. And we've always wanted to do something together. So this seemed really perfect. 
Can you tell us, can you give us a little bit about how his Hedwig will be different from John Cameron Mitchell's? Will they look the same? Well, they won't look. I mean, John's this, you know, tiny um, androgynous creature already. That's just what he is automatically. And Neil is very strapping and tall, and he's, um, so there's, physically, they won't look anything alike. But there's, you know, there are certain things. I mean, I don't think the wig is not going to be that... That iconic, that iconic Hedvig wig. It'll be similar, but I, we don't, that won't really work on him in the same great way that it worked on John. Um, but it'll be the wigs are going to be great. We're going to have more wigs. We're going to have a lot of wigs. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah, a lot of wigs, a lot of glitter, and because it's on Broadway, and the whole concept is that Hedvig has managed to get her her little band up on a Broadway stage for one night only while Tommy Gnosis is playing his concert in Times Square, that um, that there have to be some bells and whistles that go with a Broadway show. Right, because the idea is that Hedwig is this, the spurned lover and that she's you know following him around the country trying to play places where he's doing these great big Exactly. Things. She wants to set the record straight. She wants him to see her and love her and understand um, it's a it's a very fraught journey that she's on, and it's very funny as well. I mean, it's hilarious to watch her in her desperation try to like scream to him, you know, across the city. But um, the idea is that if she could somehow manage to get into a theater near enough to him, he would he would hear them, and there there might be an opportunity. For her to, to um, get what she wants. And meanwhile, she has a husband, Yitzhak. Yes, she does. And you've cast the great Lena Hall. Yes, she's amazing. From uh, Kinky Boots. Yeah. That's her most recent thing. Yeah, and but uh, if I had seen her, just what she did in Kinky Boots has nothing to do with well, The only with other thing what... I know her from is from, uh, what was the, the, the circus like... Um, Oh, I didn't see that. Do you know what yeah. I'm talking about? I can't think. Was of it like the it. Spiegel tent or something? Yes, yes, it was uh, Empire Spiegel World. That's what oh, it was. Uh-huh. yes, yeah. and she. I remember her wailing her voice. Oh my that. god! Well, I had no idea she could do this until she came in and auditioned for us. She came in in full drag. She looked great. Wow. She was a very, she's a very sexy guy. Yes, I have to I say, bet. <laughs> she really is. And I've read that the part of Yitzhak is beefed up a little bit. Is it's that true? very different. That's I think the. the biggest difference. The character of Hedvig's the same, but um, I think what, what John was really interested in pursuing, especially after he made the film, and he and Yitzhak had more of a role in the film, I think going back to the stage production, I think he wanted to really show what their relationship is, a, a kind of sadomasochistic marriage that they have, and that there's sexual connection but a power struggle that they're in and he dominates or she rather she Hedvig dominates he Yitzhak um, in a way that reflects almost the kind of um, brutality that that Hansel had experienced mm-hmm. in the in the Eastern Bloc <clears throat> And of course, you know, Neil Patrick Harris is that great entertainer and I've read a bit about how improv is going to be a, a, a big part of this production. As it always has been with Hedvig. That's one of the that's one of the um, great things about the show is that it's always site specific mm-hmm. and it's about being really in the moment with that audience. And how, how so? I mean, will he interact like will he walk down into the into the audience and talk to people? He could if he wanted to. So it's he has a, a lot of freedom. He's got a ton of freedom to do that. And I think he's also, because he's so good at that, he's just a brilliant 
MC. You know, and he was a brilliant of MC course. in cabaret, but he's also so good at these award shows, and he has got such a dynamic and at the same time very intimate relationship with the audience that this is like, I think this is catnip for him, that he, he has the ability to, to do whatever he wants, really. How long is he committed to the show? He's committed through, I think, August 15th. And you open in April. Yeah, we, op- we start previews March 29th and open April 22nd. Wow. Yeah. Can we go back and talk about some other stuff? Absolutely. I wanted to, uh, as if you didn't know, but I wanted to make a little list of the people you've either like outright discovered or have given their like career launching break to. Mm-hmm. So if you don't, if you'll indulge me, I'm just going to read it. Okay. <laughs> uh, Allison Janney, Kristen Chenoweth, Sutton Foster, Jonathan Groff, John Gallagher Jr., Leah Michelle, Betsy Wolf, Lindsay Mendez, Jesse Mueller. Those are just kind of off the top of my head. Yeah, that's right. Do you just have like a, an <laughs> eye for casting or a knack for like how how have you been able to find sift these people out of the millions that you must have seen? You know, it's a funny thing. It, I'm not sure how that happens and I don't I certainly don't set out to, to create stars. That's never been my mission at all but I've been very fortunate that I've had been able to work on shows that have really wonderful roles and I guess by the the nature of the material and at at a certain point just who I am to the material and to the actors with whom I've been able to work is that I I'm able to attract sometimes some very very exciting young talent and um, it's just been really an amazing sort of um, match with material. I mean, Sutton, that's a very famous story. I was wondering if you could give us the definitive story of this. Well, the best way to put it, honestly, is just to say that um, when we were in La Jolla and Sutton was the understudy, um, and Erin Dilly was our Millie, and she got sick. And she couldn't, she couldn't make um, a series of rehearsals in a row. I think she was out for three days. Oh. And we were getting very near the end of our rehearsal period. And I love Erin. She's wonderful. And I've seen her be just spectacular in a lot of things since before and since Millie. Um, and she just was not, she was not well. And Sutton, by some miracle, had... Like, we never had an understudy rehearsal. Oh, because that but doesn't typically happen until the show's over. Never, exactly. Right. But she really was a great understudy, and she really knew all of her shit. And one day after the other after the other, um, she just proved that she had the stuff. I mean, we always knew she was an amazing singer. But the acting was great. Her physical comedy was wonderful her and she's an absolutely fantastic dancer yeah and so what made it what makes Sutton such a unique creature in our world is to have such a such a real triple threat and when you add the physical comedy onto that I mean she's like a really a quadruple threat that way no one I just don't know anyone who can sing like that and dance like that and deliver performances so it became an undeniable thing don't forget me, Romeo and Juliet, me fly, Dove, sing, Sparrow, let me fat boy's famous arrow, give me, give me that thing, oh. It was a very difficult process. Can I ask how that happens? 
Um, I mean, it's always going to be, it's always, you know, it's a series of conversations. Mm -hmm. And um, that it was all actually um, very simpatico at the end of the day. Wow. Yeah. Um, I was going to, you know, we have a lot of young actors that listen to the podcast. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, you know, for them to have access to you for a minute is like a dream come true. Uh And so I was wondering if, can you give any tips or just anything that you've noticed that, people can do in auditions or haven't done, Mm -hmm. you know, do differently? Sure. Well, I would say one thing, like for sure, the Sutton Foster lesson is that if you are covering someone in in the rehearsal process, really learn it, you know, and do that homework because you just never know when someone's going to get sick or break a leg or something and you're going to have that opportunity. And she, she really was very smart and such a professional that she was really on top of it. Yeah. So that's a, a really crucial lesson, I think, for everyone to think about. Um, and um, for in terms of auditions and stuff, the, you know, I'm, I'm different from maybe some directors, and that's the weird thing about directing. I don't know what other people do, really, mm-hmm. because we don't work together. I know what a lot of different actors do, right. and different writers, and different designers, and composers, and lyricists, and all of that, and choreographers, but I really don't know how other directors work, because I don't get to, to watch it. How, at what point does somebody like you become involved in the casting process? Right away. Right. So from like first, first calls? Oh, yeah. Actually, it's interesting. For me, the, the first call I make is to a casting director. Oh. That's literally, once I know a show is going to happen, then that's the first, his, the casting director is the first one in. And in a way, the first one out. Uh-huh. Because they're in from the very beginning when you just start putting lists together and trying to find, you know, if it's a star vehicle or if it isn't, you start putting lists together and you hopefully, like I have a, a really deep, long relationship with Jim Carnahan who mm-hmm. casts most of my stuff. Um, not all of it, most of it. And so we have a shorthand with each other, and we can go through names of people that we like and you know, and people that we've worked with before. And then he, he is there all through the whole process, up through and into like up up to, into previews. And then, you know, that his job is basically done unless you know something terrible happens and someone gets hurt or or sick or they they get a big movie and they leave or whatever. Um, and then the rest of the collaborators keep going up until opening night. I was going to ask, because people love these stories, do you have a, a memory of a particular audition that really stands out to you? Oh, I have so many memories of auditions. This Would you share stint. one or two? Sure. Um, well, you mentioned um, Alice and Janney. Of course. So I will say that she was doing some movie. I never even saw what the movie was, but she had basically a bleached white crew cut. <laughs> And she walked into our A View from the Bridge auditions, and uh, this was just her first audition. It was she wasn't re- we weren't reading with Anthony Lapalia yet, um, and she walked in, and she just picked up the paper. She looked nothing at all like you would ever put in this show, and she looked down at her script, and she just looked up at the reader and went, "Eddie," it was her first line of the scene, and the way she said it. I, I can't tell. I knew she was going to get That just gave me chills. Yeah. I just got like chills yeah. down my spine because I can hear her voice doing yeah. it. Eddie. That's it. I mean, she read the whole scene really, really well. And then we brought her in for Arthur and for um, Anthony. And everyone was unanimous. It was very clear that she was going to get the part. But that was one where it was like, ooh, 
I had no idea she had that in her, but I felt it in that one beat. It was crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, Kristen Chenoweth is another great um, story. I'd, I'd seen her in Steel Pier, but I didn't really remember her. She didn't really have anything much to do in it. But she came in for the Charlie Brown audition and read for the role of Patty, which is a sort of nondescript character from, in the, from the original show. She's sort of an amalgam of a bunch of different just girls, you know, um, generic girls. And she came in, and she was who she is, fantastic, and I had a light bulb go off in that first audition of hers when she came in, and I just thought, oh my God, she should be Sally Brown, oh. Charlie Brown's sister. So I called um, Sparky, um, Charles Schultz, you know, that night. I called him in Santa Rosa, and I said, okay, this is, this is a real change here, but what can, could you give me, could I create a character out of, this, out of the strips? of Sally Brown and Clark Gessner was absolutely on board with that too unbelievable and so I basically made up the whole character from her first audition from her first audition I, I started then going through because I just thought okay she's so special and this the, how great would that be also you get the brother sister thing and she and Anthony would be so good together and it just seemed like a really good idea and and going through them all, I found two, um, there were two tracks of Sally. One was this thing about her school um, falling down. There was, I, I can't remember why it fell down, but it, this whole school fell down and there was a whole thing about her really missing her school. And then there was this other sequence about her getting terrible grades in school and sort of demanding some sort of recourse and trying to figure out how she was going to cope with this and so she developed a series of different philosophies and I brought these two to Andrew Lippa and I said one of these should be her song and so we decided to go with the uh, philosophy idea and that became her Tony Award winning number. It's like a guarantee my new philosophy hands-on director. You wrote the book for um, American Idiot. Right, so you, to speak. I mean, yeah. such as it is, yeah. Right. Um, you know, you you really get involved. I mean, what, I mean, I know you said you don't know how other directors work, but right. um, why, why do you do that? Well, because when I'm working on something new, especially, I feel like I, I just love doing it, and I like to participate in every element of it. Spring Awakening, for instance, happened you know, you know, when, when Stephen Sater called me and said he had this idea for, for me to direct it and, this, and Duncan Sheik to write the songs with him. And I said, sure, so, but nothing had been written at that point. So from the very beginning, the three of us worked together to create that. So it was a very um, intimate and intense process. We really needed to talk about Spring Awakening because it was such a m moment, mm. you know, it was such a moment and that was such a magical show, you know, that was such an incredible show that was had such a very young cast, you know, it was a lot of like kids making either their professional debuts or, you know, or close to that. Mm -hmm. um, you, it was a seven year period, right, that it took yeah. to, to create that and you said that it was never, you never envisioned it being on Broadway, you just wanted to do Spring Awakening as a musical. Would That's you right. have been happy if it had just been an off-Broadway production somewhere and it hadn't had the life that it had had? 
Well, you know, a 2020 hindsight, no, of course. It was a wonderful success on Broadway. And as a result, it had, you know, it has this tremendous life everywhere now. Um, so I couldn't, I can't say now that I, I wish that hadn't happened. It happened in a really great way. Um, but I will say at the, at the time, my dream for it was to live off Broadway. If we could have stayed at the Atlantic for five years, I would have been very, very happy. If we, my first dream was that it would work at all, <laughs> right. at all, that people would come and see it and think it was good. The next dream I had was that it would, might be good enough to play into the summer that we could extend a few weeks. And once that happened pretty quickly, I thought, okay, we got to stay here. And I was like, I was like, can't you guys do the rest of your season, you know, somewhere else? Can't you rent <laughs> we'll get you a garage thing? somewhere? Yeah. And when that became very, very quickly, you know, clear that that wasn't going to happen, I talked to. Um, Tom Hulse and Ira Pittleman are our two lead producers, and I begged them. I was like, Ira, can't you, can't you just buy a church somewhere <laughs> else? You know, we'll move it to a different church, and let's just play, you know, off Broadway. And it became clear that the numbers just don't work. I mean, I think it's actually a, a, one of the biggest tragedies of our time. Off Broadway. The theaters that we have no off Broadway theater, really. Yeah, very no commercial off Broadway theater. We just itself. had Michael Urie last week, and you know he's doing buyer and seller downtown, mm, and he's so good in so that. So good oh in it, God. and the show itself is great, and that's Wonderful. the one one very rare shining example. It's one person and one set. I yeah. mean, that's the thing. You can yeah. do that. Um, I think that David Cromer's Our Town worked, mm -hmm. but I don't. I think that was a that was tough for them. To, to make money on that. And they extended and extended and extended. And I think it's because, I, I, I don't know, but I imagine it's because their profit margin was yeah. so great that in order to recoup, they had to keep going. Plus, there was an audience for it, which is great. Yeah. That was thrilling to see that happen, that, you know, that a, a revival of a classic play could actually have that kind of a life off-Broadway. It was very cool. I wanted to ask you about another quote of yours that I read that I thought was so interesting. Um, let me just find it. Okay, I'm going to read it here. It says, okay. um, you talked about how during what we refer to as the golden age of musical theater, show tunes were the popular music of the time, what young people listened to. So it begs the question about, you know, starting with Spring Awakening. How mm -hmm. did, where did you get the insane idea to marry this incredibly contemporary pop music with this really classical score? And, you know, did you think it was going to work? Well, originally, our first the first thought we had was to update the whole thing, right? And um, that just didn't work because the story is about ignorance and a lack of information, and you just can't tell that story in this in this age, you know, with the Twitter and and computers and Google and all of that. I mean, every you can get a hold of any bit of information that you need. So that didn't work. So we thought about then moving it to the recent past, like the 50s in the Midwest or something. But that's not the music Duncan writes. And so then it would be this weird disconnect of these um, American kids in the 50s singing music that was millennial in its sound. Right. It just did, that didn't make sense. But I, then I thought, well, maybe that's kind of cool. Maybe, it's, maybe there's like a disconnect. But then, then I had an image in my head of like, what if we do it like... What if we really go for it and, and set the play in its proper time period in this German village in 1890-something? And I, I saw these little boys in all their little jackets, you know? And I saw, and I imagined the kid, one kid like pulling a microphone out oh, and singing. I just got chills again. And singing this contemporary music because then what you do, what you're doing, is a, a kind of a Brechtian 
um, discipline there, which is you're, you're disconnecting from the character. So he's stepping out of character and singing as himself or as a contemporary young person expressing the same kinds of emotional life that is universal to all kids when they're coming of age sexually and finding their own identity inside a potentially repressive environment, you know, dealing with teachers and parents and the clergy being the big three sort of oppressive forces. talked about you know working with the young people in that show and uh-huh. American Idiot as well and on the tours and you talk about you know pushing them to the edge without letting them go over mm-hmm. and I wonder a couple of things how do you how do you find kids or young people that you think you can trust with this material that have the that have the goods that can do eight shows a week but also then direct them in a way that is appropriate right well I think that with Spring Awakening which was the first of the, was, I did a play called Stupid Kids many years ago, which was also with, with young people. And I really loved doing that. And I think I did learn a lot of lessons from that to, to see, because it was very frank sexual material as well and emotional stuff. And it, and it was a very good training ground for me. Plus, I had taught a lot you know, at NYU and Fordham, and I had a lot of experience teaching young people. So I, I kind of had an intuitive understanding at that point about how far you could push and how, how willing they would be to go. Um, and I think that when you establish mutual trust, which is very important to me, in any rehearsal room, no matter whether, you know, whether it's with Betty Buckley or whether it's with you know, Jonathan Groff, or you know, or some of the young, even younger kids that I have now on the American Idiot tour, mm-hmm. you know. So it doesn't. It's the, you want to have the same rules apply, but with the kids, because in a way, and this is going to sound a little exploitative, and I don't mean it to, but in a way, they don't know better. So they actually don't know that someone twice their age would say, "Well, I'm not doing that. That's too difficult for me to do eight times a week." I can't push myself that far. I could, you know, it, it's too much. Um, because they don't know they can't do it, they can do it. And I think that's the beautiful thing of watching the young people in some of these shows is that their their energy is boundless and their imagination is completely unfettered by what is normally done because they haven't done it yeah. in that normal way. And so, you've also talked about about blurring the line between their personal experience and the character they're they're playing and trying to pull a real personal connection between them and the audience. Well, look, you know, professional act, really great professional actors who have done this for their whole life, that's what their work is and they understand that already. A lot of the kids that I work with don't have that that much training and they don't have that much experience to know how to use their own personal experience in their work that way. They don't have that skill set. So I'm basically doing that kind of work with them so that they can understand how to personalize what the, the, the role and the actions and the scenes and the songs and stuff. And because when we're casting, we really try to cast 
the right people in the right role, the hope is that they are going to relate to that character in a, in a specific and immediate way. Mm-hmm. Um, just to talk a little bit about American Idiot, yeah. because both Mike and I like are not people who are into like our producer Mike are not into like boy dude music, you know. Uh-huh. But this was an album before it was a musical that yeah. we both love that we were immediately drawn to and then we read that you were you know in the process of turning it into a musical and mm-hmm. it was such a wonderful musical but what drew you to it i mean how, how did you come to this album for me like i like you i i actually liked green day and it was weird that i liked them because that's not kind of that's not my stuff either i didn't grow up listening to punk or post-punk or punk pop or pop right, punk right. or it was all Madonna all the time well for me it was like more all Judy all the time <laughs> right. and then Elton John <laughs> yes girl and then after that it was then I, I, I'm not sure who but you know but um, Madonna I sort of missed the Madonna thing yeah, yeah. I don't know why I just was I was around obviously but it, I don't know why that I can't believe really you never happen. directed her in anything <laughs> I don't know why either, but you know, maybe that will happen someday. She's a huge fan of the Theater People podcast. I'm sure we can make that happen. Okay, cool. I'm, I'm sure she is. That's exciting. Um, hopefully, she'll come to see Hedvig, and I'll get to meet her. That would be fun. That would be a great fun. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, the question was, if I remember correctly, is how did American Idiot come to be in that? Like, kind how did like, I like listen to that? Why did and, you care about it, and what made you think you right. could turn it into a musical? Well, I didn't think about the musical part of it right away when I first heard it it was like you I was listening to this album and I was like whoa this is good these are good songs they're melodic the lyrics are poetic yet they're very strong and with an incredible point of view and if you listen to the album enough and follow the narrative in it it's a story of a young man looking around him in the this suburban wasteland that he was spawned into and saying like what the fuck? I, this this isn't the life I want. And there's a kind of tyranny of lowered expectations. And when you know everyone around you, and in, including the the body politic, sort of writes you off as kind of um, without any agency and without any intelligence and with nothing to offer, you start to adopt that yourself it's very easy to to let the sort of the society at large become a mirror for you and i saw that happening a lot in those years in those post 911 years and it was very discouraging for me and for a lot of people that i know to see young people so apathetic and feeling like they they couldn't do anything about it and well this is my life so and i think it's not it's not a coincidence that you saw that's when all of like crystal meth started really taking off all across america at that time there was a um, a feeling of hopelessness and despair and not a good faith relationship with our government absolutely and so absolutely. and so there here are these three punks from 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 oakland making an, a, a political album that is articulating the, the core beliefs of a, an entire generation of people who were considered by many to be completely useless. Uh, and they're smart enough to recognize that they've been drinking a kind of Kool-Aid that they didn't need to be drinking and that wasn't good for them. And they woke up and they said, fuck this shit, 
get me to the city, get me out of here, and let me try to figure out how to be a person in this new world. And that's what the record was about to me. And it just started, I just started dreaming about what it would be like to put it on stage because it was so clearly a, a rock opera. It, it felt like a rock opera when you when yeah. you listened to it. I mean, it seemed like... Yeah, and even like the, the cover, it's, you know, when I look at it, it's, it's, you know, Green Day presents American Idiot and it's, it already had a theatrical kind of context to it. So it seemed like a really good idea to me and I never thought they would let me anywhere near it. So I was very surprised when... Billy Were they Joe immediately was, receptive? Well, it, not what they had been apparently approached um, by some people about turning it into a film at one point, and that kind of that went away. And they were just and they weren't making it available to anyone for any other media at all. And Tom Hulse, God bless him, you know, when he heard that I was interested in this, he listened to it and he said, "Well, do you want me to try to get a meeting with them?" And I was like, oh, knock yourself out, Tom. <laughs> I'm sure they want to meet with me, you know. But we did get a meeting with their with their agent, um, Jenna Adler at CAA, and their manager, Pat Magnarella. And Tom and I went out to L.A. This was the summer of 2008. No, 7, 2007, that summer. Because it was after the Tonys mm-hmm. of Spring Awakening. Of course. And so we're, it was like in July, we met with them and basically pitched the general idea of taking the album and putting it on stage and creating, you know, other voices. And and I didn't have an idea of what those other stories would be, but I had a, a vague sense that it would be a journey of maybe some friends. And that was all I had. And they're like, we like it. I was like, okay, great. So we're going to bring it to Billy and see what he thinks. And a few weeks later, we got a call um, saying that Billy Joe would, is interested in meeting and talking about it and would like very much to come and see Spring Awakening. So that was set up. And then I think it was September, October, he came and, you know, he watched the show. And, you know, the kids were like ballistic, <laughs> as you can imagine. And in particular, John Gallagher Jr. was just, like I saw him at intermission, he says, is Green Day in the house? Is Green Day in the house? <laughs> and I said, well, Billy Joe is. He said, oh, my God. Oh, my God, I can't believe... You know, he was really, like... He was... And he is unflappable. Yeah. But he was he was pretty freaked out about it. Um, anyway, Billy um, loved it. And we sat at... Um, that worked out great for John Gallagher Jr., by the way. It certainly did. <laughs> it worked out really great. Because Billy, in particular, he loved the show. And he really loved John. And I said, well, that's my... He's my idea for the Jesus of Suburbia character because I really wanted to make it for him because I knew how much he loved that kind of music and in particular that album as well. So we sat at Bar Centrale, oh, a very I unlikely place, place for Billy Joe Armstrong. I know, I love it too. <laughs> he, Billy Joe Armstrong at the bar? We're sitting there. We had one of those booths at the back oh, and Nathan so... Lane is walking by and Bernadette <laughs> Peters. You know, it's like the whole like the whole thing, all these theater people. And then there's this, you know, punk rocker back there just hunkered down and talking to me about life and wow. and how he thought this, what he thought about this idea and how much he loved Spring Awakening because it wasn't like a, you know, it didn't feel like a typical musical. It wasn't South Pacific or something right. that felt like, you know, his grandparents' music. And um, and we just started spitballing ideas, and we closed the place down. And I felt like a real connection to him, and he gave me his blessing to go ahead and try to 
cobble uh, a story together. And that's really what the book is. It's really just taking that and creating characters and making a story. I just don't know what else to call it. But the it's, libretto, I guess, if it were, if it's an opera, you'd call it the libretto. It's unimaginable to me that he didn't think that this would happen. You know, I mean, it, like we were talking about before, it just seems to be so... It, it seems almost as though it was written to be made into a musical. I know, but he never actually... He did think of it that way. You know, he thought of... He listened to uh, a quick one by The Who, mm-hmm. and I think he looked at Tommy also, and um, Jesus Christ Superstar and West Side Story. Those were influences. But it was only to make the album. I don't think he ever envisioned it as an actual physical production. Yeah, and that was amazing. Yeah. He was incredible. He's a, he was in, and did you see him in it? I did, and I also oh. saw Melissa Etheridge in it. Oh, she was wonderful. Who I'm too. like obsessed with. Well, when she sang The Death of St. Jimmy, uh, couldn't you die? I mean, that yes. was so unbelievable. I couldn't believe we got tickets. Like, as soon as yeah. we heard it was happening, we, like, yeah. you know, got tickets right what away. What a great person she yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe we can end by talking about, like, one of my favorite shows of all time, yeah. which is Everyday Rapture. Five, six, seven, I'm a mom. So glad you feel that oh, way. Oh God, I, you know, I remember. Well, actually, I saw Sherry Renee Scott do a one-woman show at the LGBT Center forever. And that ever, was the very ago. first version of this. I'm so glad to hear you say that because yeah. I've never been able to find that sort of confirmation of that anywhere. That's correct. Um, she and Dick started working on something they'd asked her to sing, and Sherry just doesn't. She doesn't want to sing as herself. She always feels like she needs a character or a construct, and so she and Dick started working on that. And that's and I didn't see that actually, but that was the first step. And then the next step was um, they did a section uh, after um, 9/11. Shikaboom did a did a um, what do you call it a, a benefit like a fund? Yeah. I don't know if it was a fundraiser for. Oh, I remember 9/11. this. I remember yeah, it was this. Up, up on the Upper West Side, but they did another section of it, which was absolutely charming. It was the New York City section, part of that, and then um, and then. They did a version of the whole show at the Zipper, and, it, and they did it for two nights at the Zipper. And Dick was directing it at the time, and I thought he did a great job. And I went, and I was blown away, and I said, I want to help you guys. I really want to help you. This has to have a life. It's so great, and it's got so much potential. There's work to be done, but I want to help you in any way I can. Maybe I can help raise money to move it. And they said, oh, thank you, thank you. And then we met. You know, We had lunch a few days later, and they said, we would like you to help us by directing it. <laughs> and I said, I would be honored, but wow. I don't think it's necessary. I think Dick has done such a beautiful job. And he said, I really want to be the writer. <laughs> right. I want to be the writer on this. And I want that, you know, relation. We have had such a good time together on Millie and on his one-man show, um, 75 Inches, which we had worked on. So I feel like, you know, he, he was like, let's, 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 you direct it. 
I'll write it, and Sherry will write it, and she'll perform it, and that'll be that. And so we did a uh, one-night-only benefit for um, the Phyllis Newman Health Initiative on the stage of Spring Awakening, actually. And it was wonderful. At that point, it was called Please, uh, Please Worship Me. Yes, yes. You may all now you, worship no, me. You, you, you may now worship me. Yes. That's what it was, yeah. Um, was went really, really well. And we were hoping that someone might want to pick it up, but that didn't happen immediately. So we went to a second stage and did a, a small workshop of it to try to get it a little bit further. And then Carol Rothman said, I love this and I want to do it. And she actually came up with the title. Oh, really? Yep, that was Carol Rothman's idea, calling it Everyday Rapture, and which it, was perfect. It, it seems like it happened because Lips Together, Teeth Apart fell apart at Roundabout. Is that right? That's why it moved to the Roundabout. That's what it I mean, started yeah. at second stage. Right. And we did it at second stage, and it, got, it was wonderfully received. Yes. And we found, you know, Lindsay Mendez and Betsy Wolf. We're having Betsy Wolf on the show in and, a few weeks. And Eamon Foley. Mm-hmm. Oh I my mean, God, he's the right? best. Amazing. <laughs> yes. Um, so it, was, it was a dream company. And it was my, you know, my gang. You know, it was Kevin Adams and Christine Jones and Brian Ronan on sound. Um, and my beloved Tom Broker did the costumes. So it was a real family kind of feeling. And then when Lips Together... Um, Teeth apart. Teeth apart. Lips together. Teeth apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. I can't remember how that. Yeah, when that fell apart, then you know we got this call. I was in tech. I know for American Idiot. At American Idiot, and we got the call saying, "Could you do this?" And I really didn't think it was going to be possible, but we we figured out a crazy schedule, and we somehow made that work. And ultimately, a really funny thing happened, which was we had an incredibly beautiful set piece of a frame of light bulbs in American Idiot, which was designed for um, Rock and Roll Girlfriend, but it never worked. It just didn't make sense for the song. So we cut it, and it was just sitting backstage waiting, and I thought, wait a minute. I have a really good idea for Up the Ladder to the Roof. We could bring that frame in, and let's see if, let's see if the roundabout can make a deal with American Idiot and maybe buy that that. Um, that piece because it's designed by Christine and Kevin oh so it was the same designers so it worked out brilliantly I, I just think she's uh, an extraordinary performer, and she and Dick are a beautiful writing team. So it was, I hope they do more together, and I hope I get to do it with them. I was wondering if that show would ever be done without Sherry Renee Scott. It was done. Oh, um, really? in Kansas City, Dick oh. went to see it, and he said that it was really good. It worked. Wow. When I, I started doing Smash right after that. Oh, of course. And so when I started working with Megan Hilty, one of the things I said, you know, just dealing with her, I thought, you know, you'd be great at Everyday Rapture. <laughs> <laughs> she would do a really good job totally. of that. You know, she could do, you know, a revival of it. I want to see the Megan Hilty one-woman show. Oh, yes. I'm sure that's coming down the pipe <laughs> totally. at some point. Yeah, she's amazing, too. So what's next for you after Hedwig? After Hedvig, I have, I'm going back to, I, I did uh, a few episodes of a new TV show called Alpha House oh. on Amazon.com starring um, 
um, written by Gary Trudeau and starring John Goodman. Oh. It's really, really fun. And so they got picked up and they've asked me to come back. So I'll do a few more episodes. I'll do the premiere um, in July and a couple other episodes. And then I've got about three, I've got four different musical projects that are in various stages of development. And the one that is, is, is the closest to happening is called Brooklynite. Wow, and it's a uh, superheroes like Brooklyn hipster superheroes. I've heard of it. I've yeah, we did it. A, we did a reading of it um, last summer up at New York Stage and Film. Wow, yeah. my husband will kill me if I don't ask you. Mm-hmm. How was the Met? You did Rigoletto. At the I loved it. I had the best time. And if you're going to do your first opera, to do like a beloved opera at the Metropolitan Opera is really a scary thing. So I don't necessarily recommend it for a first timer, <laughs> but. I'm, I sort of managed because I had such good people around me to to get it done in a in a good way, and I had the best time. It's it, a beautiful place. It seems like the Met is trying to marry musical theater world with the opera world more. We just thought Deflator Mouse with yeah. Betsy Wolf and uh-huh. Danny Burstein, right? And it was beautiful. Yeah, and yeah. it just looks more expensive. You know what I mean? Like it looks like the sets are just insane. Well, the place is huge. Yeah, I mean it's unbelievable to go backstage. Is uh, and the, the army of people working there who are so dedicated to making this stuff happen. It's unbelievably inspiring and very, um, it's very um, humbling to see all of that work to go to um, create and maintain and push this really important centuries old art form. Um, forward and to be a part of that was a real honor for me and I'm looking forward to doing more there amazing yeah Michael Mayer, it has been a true honor to have you on the podcast. I can't believe you said yes, so thank you. Thank that you was for my being pleasure. Here. It was so much fun, and you asked good questions, and I don't think I answered all of them either. That's okay. Well, maybe someday we'll come back and talk more. Okay. I'm happy to. <laughs> when we get the, uh, the superhero musical, we'll get you back. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Today's episode was produced by me and Mike Jensen. Special thanks, as always, to BroadwaySpotted.com, Davenport Theatrical, Shikaboom and Ghostlight Records for use of music from Everyday Rapture, Steve Tipton, who manages our website, Bradley Bean, who wrote and recorded our theme music, the staff at Oswald's, and Ellen Marsh. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter, where we upload fun new content every day. You can find all of our episodes at our website, www.theaterpeople.com. That's theater with an E-R-P-P-L dot com. We'll be back in two weeks with our cabaret episode featuring downtown sensation Bridget Everett and uptown songstress Maude Maggard. Give them a Google. Until next time, tell your friends about us and let's get the theater community talking. Mama Hoopa.